Well, it's great to see you all here this morning on uh, this beautiful Lord's Day that God has given to us, and uh, we're glad you're here with us. Um, If you're visiting here with us, thank you for coming to spend this Lord's Day with us. Um, Thank you for being here in person, those of you that are here and those of us joining us online. We appreciate that, obviously, a great deal as well. Uh, The 930 service, we had a a couple of families dedicate children to the Lord. We usually do that on Mother's Day, but uh, we we moved that, obviously, because of what was going on with, with the coronavirus. But anyway, we had a couple of young, uh, two young couples here at 9.30. That was uh, really, really a special time with them this morning. Uh, but if, you're, if you are visiting with us, we're finishing up this morning our uh, summer series in 1 Corinthians 13. So if you have your Bible and you want to open there with me, uh, we've titled this series A More Excellent Way. Uh, we've kind of informally called this the summer of love. So it's going to end here this morning. We're going to look this morning at verses 8 through 13. Some of you may have thought we were going to be in this chapter for uh, months on end as slowly as we were going, but uh, going to pick up speed here this morning and cover these, these last few verses. So let me read for us uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13, verses 8 through 13. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. But now, but now faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. May the Lord write His eternal word on our hearts this morning. Back in 1983, John Scully was the president of Pepsi. And up to that point, that had been his life's work, uh, building that company. I mean, he helped turn it into one of the the world's most recognizable brands. And uh, people noticed, and among them was uh, a founder of a Silicon Valley startup. Uh, The man's name was Steve Jobs, and his company was Apple. And Jobs was grappling with a dilemma because he was a a very driven young man, but he was very young and inexperienced. Uh, Nobody doubted his intellect, but the board of uh, directors of his company, they wanted somebody more seasoned to kind of run the day-to-day operations. So Jobs immediately set his sights on hiring John Scully. Uh, Jobs wasn't going to take no for an answer, but that was the answer he got again and again and again as he pursued uh, John Scully. I mean, you can, you can think about, you know, Scully, was, his reasoning was, why leave this great successful company uh, to join some company that may not even exist in five years? But finally, in desperation, Steve Jobs visited John Scully, and here was his final pitch to him. Do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life, or do you want to come with me and change the world? Well, John Scully left Pepsi later that year to join Steve Jobs um, at Apple. And I think that story taps into a universal desire we all have uh, to share and to live and to give ourselves to something that's going to last, to something that's going to endure. We all want to live a life that counts. Uh, We want to live for something that's going to outlast us. We want to pursue something that has eternal significance. We all want to give ourselves to something that's not going to die when we die. And according to the Bible, there is something like that. There is something that endures, that never fails, it never wears out, it never goes out of style. And of course, that thing is love. It's agape love. 
that we've been studying here in 1 Corinthians 13. There's, netter, there's nothing better for you and for me to give our lives to than love, to spend our time and our effort pursuing, because love is something without which everything else is nothing. That's what we've seen in our study of 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, one man I was reading this week described it in a way that really caught my attention. He called love the oxygen of the kingdom. It's a beautiful way to picture it. It's the, the thing that we cannot do without um, in our lives and our ministries. So this morning, I want to take a last look at this lasting value of love here in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, uh, we've seen is kind of like a priceless diamond. I mean, it has a lot of facets and a lot of perfections to it. But like every diamond, um, 1 Corinthians 13 has a setting. And 1 Corinthians 13 is not just kind of a standalone passage that, uh, that God had Paul write to make us feel good or uh, just to read at weddings. I know Paul is addressing a pastoral problem in the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 13, we've pointed out many times, is sandwiched between two chapters about the use and the abuse of spiritual gifts. And the problem is the believers at Corinth had elevated one of the gifts, that is the gift of tongues, to an undue prominence. Because it was a gift that made them feel good and made them look good. And they thought that it made them more spiritual. So Paul writes this chapter out of a pastor's heart to instruct them that the gifts of the Spirit must be guided and governed by the graces of the Spirit. And so at the end of chapter 12, Paul says, and I show you a more excellent way. And of course, that more excellent way is the way of love. Now, spiritual gifts are good, but what Paul is saying is they're not supreme. Uh, Paul is emphasizing character over charisma. Love is what supremely matters. So we've broken this chapter down into three parts. Uh, verses 1 to 3, we talked about the priority of love. Uh, verses 4 to 7, we looked at the last few weeks where the, the practices or the profile of love, uh, what love includes and excludes. And then in verses 8 to 13 this morning, we want to focus on the permanence of love. So we move in verse 8 now from the character of love to the constancy of love. And I have three simple points this morning you can see in your outline, uh, the permanence of love, the preeminence of love, and then the pursuit of love. So let's start here with uh, the permanence of love. Beginning in verse 8, Paul is going to set love in contrast to the gifts that the Corinthians valued the most. Often the, the, a good way to make a point is to, to make a point by contrast, and that's what Paul will do here. And what his point is going to be that love has a lasting value to it that's unlike any of the spiritual gifts that ultimately will cease and fail. They're going to vanish away, and they're going to become obsolete when that which is perfect comes. And we'll talk about what the perfect is here in a moment. But verse 8 begins, love never fails. Now, this is kind of the bridge between the description of love in verses 4 to 7 and this comparison of love in verses 8 to 13. The word fails that he uses there, love never fails, was used by Jesus back at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when Jesus talked about the, the house that was built on the rock? And when the storm came and the wind blew against it, he said, that house did not fall. And you remember the house built on sand, and it says, when the, the wind and the storm beat against it, great was its fall. That's the same word that's used here, love never fails, or, or love never falls. It means love doesn't crumble. A love doesn't collapse. 
It doesn't fall to pieces under adverse pressure and circumstances. Our love is built on the foundation of God's love, which is eternal and unchanging. So true love, biblical love, goes the distance. It's there when you need it the most. It doesn't fail and doesn't falter. There's a story uh, back from World War I about two men who were friends um, out on the, the front in, in battle. One of them w- was wounded and, and lying out there between uh, the trench uh, where the American soldiers were and, and the trench of the enemy on the other side. It was kind of called no man's land. And they were caught in this, in this trench kind of pinned down with gunfire whizzing overhead. And this, this young man wanted to go out there to retrieve his friend. And he asked the lieutenant several times if he could go, and he kept telling him no. And finally, he asked him so many times that the lieutenant said, you can go ahead and go. But he said, it's going to be useless. He said, your friend's probably already dead anyway, and you're going to get yourself killed. It's not going to be worth it. The young man jumped up out of the trench, ran, and hoisted his friend on his shoulder, and he was wounded himself seriously in the process. As the two of them tumbled back together into the bottom of the trench, Uh, The the lieutenant looked at him. He says, I told you it wouldn't be worth it. Your friend is dead and you're seriously wounded. But the soldier said, but it was worth it. And the lieutenant said, what do you mean it was worth it? Your friend is dead. And he said, yes, sir. He said, but it was worth it because when I got to him, he was still alive. And I had the satisfaction of hearing him say, Jim, I knew you'd come. I knew you'd come. That's love. Love doesn't fail. It doesn't falter. It, It comes through. When, when we need it the most. Uh, this word here, love never fails, um, it's also the same word used, a form of it, in uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 24, where the verse there talks about the, the flower that falls off. And so it's telling us here, love doesn't lose its vitality or its bloom. It doesn't fade with the passage of time. Time is not an enemy of love. Our love is founded on God's love, and His love never fails and never fades. And this is in sharp contrast to the spiritual gifts that will fade away. Now, beginning here in the middle of verse 8, Paul is not denigrating spiritual gifts. He's not putting them down, but he's setting them in contrast to love and emphasizing that one day they will cease. Notice he says, if there be gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Now, these are three revelatory gifts, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Prophecy, a lot of people mistakenly today believe that the gift of prophecy still exists and that people who are preachers really are kind of prophets. When you proclaim God's word that you're a prophet. When you look the word up, though, at a Greek lexicon, the word prophet or prophecy means to speak for God. It's someone who's a mouthpiece for God who speaks divine revelation. It's not just someone who interprets the Bible, but somebody who actually speaks divine revelation. Um, The gift of tongues was the supernatural ability to speak a language that you'd never learned before. So it's not just uh, some gibberish or something like that. It's, it's, It's a language. And so you really could call the gift of tongue the gift of languages. 
Some of you that take a foreign language may wish you had that gift sometimes, taking the test at school, but um, it's this gift to be able to, to learn and speak a language that you've never known, to speak, again, revelation from God in a language you don't know. But then knowledge is mentioned here, and this is more than just kind of general knowledge or knowledge about the Bible. Again, this is special knowledge that's given by God. Uh, back in chapter 12 and verse 8, it's called the Word of Knowledge where people would be given a special knowledge by God on a certain topic. Now, the point here is the transitory nature of these gifts over against the permanent nature of love. His point is these gifts are passing. Uh, They're partial, they're preparatory, they're preliminary. But love is permanent. There's no expiration date on love. It never fades or fails. And that, of course, means a life of love is the only lasting legacy that you and I have because gifts will pass away. Now, notice he says, if there are prophecies, they will be done away. And that verb there means to be abolished or brought to an end. And then notice the end of the verse, if there is knowledge, it will be done away. It's the same verb that's used there. But notice in the middle, if there are tongues, they will cease. It's a different verb that's used there. And again, I don't want to get too technical, but it's in the middle voice. And in Greek, the middle voice is a voluntary action upon oneself. So what it means is tongues will stop on their own. Prophecy and, tongue and, and, and uh, knowledge will cease, but, but it will be done away, but, but tongues will cease. And you'll notice in verse 9, when he goes on, he mentions knowledge again and prophecy, but he leaves tongues out just in the very next verse. So the gift of tongues had a built-in stopping point. And when that point was reached, he's saying it automatically ended. Now, the text doesn't tell us when that will happen specifically, but I think it gives us a clue. Now, notice in verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled on what the perfect is. Um, It's the Greek word teleon. It's often translated mature or complete or full-grown. When the mature or the complete or the full-grown comes, the partial is going to be done away. Now, we could spend a whole sermon talking here about the meaning of the perfect, but let me just give kind of what are the two main views out there. A lot of people believe the perfect is the completion of the canon of Scripture. When all 66 books were completed and we had the full revelation from God to us, that was the perfect when the mature or the full grown came. And of course, that came about in about 95 AD when the Apostle John finished the book of Revelation. First uh, Corinthians is written in about the mid-50s, so that'd be about 40 years later. And the argument for those who believe the perfect is the Word of God Uh, that's completed, their argument goes like this. They'd say, well, look, prophecy and tongues and knowledge were revelatory gifts. And when the partial is completed, that will happen when we have the full revelation from God, which is in the Bible. So the perfect is when we get all of God's perfect revelation and it's brought to an end and it's in place. So that's the the closed canon view of of, of this idea of the perfect. The the, the problem with that view to me is, is down in verse 12, he says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I know in part, but then I'll fully know. It seems to be relating this to the time when the Lord comes and we're in heaven with him, seeing him face to face. 
So the second view or the majority view is that the perfect here is the second coming of Christ. Some would say it's the eternal state. People might see it as at a different point, but it's in the future when we're with the Lord, when we're seeing Him face to face. And to me, that does seem to be the clearest and least obscure view in the context because it looks to the time when we're glorified and we're in God's presence. Now, notice there's a couple of illustrations here that Paul uses of the maturing of of the church and the partial passing away. In verse 11, he uses the illustration of a growing child or physical maturity. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. The idea of a growing from infancy to maturity, I think you're picturing uh, the church of Jesus Christ. He also uses the image here of seeing. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Uh, The city of Corinth was well known for its production of good quality bronze mirrors. But the mirrors of that day, no matter how um, good they were, they always had some degree of distortion. And so Paul says, we see in a mirror dimly. The Greek word there, dimly, some of your translations may say darkly, but it's the Greek word enigma. We get our word enigma from that. And there are a lot of enigmas today in life, aren't there? I mean, in other words, today we see obscurely and we see imperfectly. Um, This world we look at and so much in it is fuzzy and indistinct. Um, our, our, Our present knowledge is fuzzy and fragmentary. And one of the things I wish all the time in my life, and I'm sure you do the same as well, I wish I could see more clearly and understand things better. There's a lot of mystery to this life, and there's so much that I don't understand. There's so much I don't understand about the Bible. Uh, There's so much we don't understand about ourselves and other people and the world we live in. But he says, someday We're not going to have to look in this mirror, and and things aren't going to be an enigma to us anymore, but we're going to see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also uh, been fully known. God will someday fill in the gaps for us. Now, I don't think there's ever going to be a time when we're going to know as much as God knows, because God is infinite. God is omniscient. He knows everything that could ever be known. I think we will continue throughout eternity to learn but we will know infinitely more than we know now. And someday it says we're going to see him. We're going to see him face to face. And Think about what that's going to be like. We're going to be face to face, not just with our Redeemer, the one who redeemed us. We're going to look face to face into the eyes of our Creator. Think about that. We're going to see him face to face, our Creator and our Redeemer and our great God, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm looking forward to getting to heaven to know a lot more than I know now. I think it was C.S. Lewis years ago. This is a great, great story. He said, uh, whenever he gets to heaven, he said, I think the first two words I'm going to speak are, of course. <laughs> I like that. We get to heaven, we're going to say, of course. <laughs> I mean, you know, how fool, how, how could I not have figured that out or seen that? And I like that because I think we're going to say that a lot in heaven, of course. Things are going to make sense to us. God's going to fill in the gaps. We won't be looking in this dim, dark mirror and this enigma anymore. We're going to know fully as we're known. Now, the perfect here, I believe, is, as I said, the second coming or the eternal state when we're in God's presence. But 
The fact that the perfect is the Lord's coming, I don't think rules out the gradual passing away or obsolescence of some of the gifts during this age. And I think verse 11 seems to point to that when he looks at the church kind of like a child that matures and grows and has certain things in infancy, but doesn't need those things uh, further on as it grows. So just as children grow from infancy to maturity and some things pass away, some of these gifts will pass away as the church moves from its infancy stage. Now, I was helped in this uh, this week. Um, in fact, I've got a, a New Testament version of the Ryrie Study Bible here. Let me just read you what Charles Ryrie says in his note here on chapter 13, verse 11. He says, there are stages of growth within the present imperfect time before Christ's return. After the church began, there was a period of immaturity during which spectacular gifts were needed for growth and authentication. Within the completion of the New Testament and the growing maturity of the church, the need for such gifts disappeared. And so while the, the perfect ultimately is the Lord's coming and the eternal state, that doesn't rule out the fact that some of the gifts may cease during the infancy stage of the church. And to me, that view is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Um, I think the New Testament teaches that some of the gifts were foundational and confirmatory. Ephesians 2.20 says the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. We're not out looking for another cornerstone for the church. Jesus is it. But we're not looking for another foundation as well. The foundation was laid by the apostles and by the prophets who spoke a direct divine revelation from God. Um, over in the book of Hebrews, the author of the Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 4, talks about the apostles. And he says, God bore them, that is the apostles, witness through signs and through miracles and wonders. Notice he doesn't say God bore witness through us, but through the apostles. These miracles and sign gifts seem to have been uniquely related to the apostles. I mean, even Paul over in 2 Corinthians 2, 12, uh, in, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, when I was among you, he says, I did the signs of an apostle. Now, if a lot of people were going around doing those signs, then that wouldn't have authenticated that Paul was an apostle. But he could say, look, I did these signs, these specific signs that prove to you and show that I'm an apostle. So these were foundational confirmatory gifts, I believe, prophecy and, and, and tongues and knowledge and, and some of these other gifts, apostle. Even as you go along through the New Testament and it progresses in time, you see a decrease, even in the New Testament, in the miraculous. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul beseeches God three times to take away his thorn in the flesh, and God says, my grace is sufficient. I've always found it interesting, the very last chapter, inspired chapter, we have by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, when he was being arrested, he, he says, I left my friend Trophimus sick in the city of Miletus. Paul left one of his closest friends behind sick. You say, well, why didn't Paul heal this person like he had done earlier um, in his ministry? Because again, I think as this infancy stage is moving along and the church is becoming mature, uh, some of these gifts passed away. Now, having said that, we believe at Faith Bible Church, and I want to emphasize this, we believe God still does miracles today. 
We believe God still heals people today. But I don't see those as gifts because a spiritual gift is something that's normative. It's something that you do with regularity and consistency in your Christian life, like the gift of giving or the gift of helps or the gift of teaching or the gift of service. And if there was anyone on the face of the earth today that was speaking you know, d- direct divine revelation from God, uh, someone that was doing great signs and wonders and miracles like Jesus and the apostles did, and they were doing that in a normative way, surely in our culture today where the world's this interconnected, we would know about it. And so again, that argues to the fact that these were foundational and they were confirmatory. Now, having said all that, which really isn't the main point of the sermon this morning, but having said all that, whatever your view is of all of that, it doesn't change the main thrust of this passage, and that's what I don't want us to, want us, us to miss. The main point is that love doesn't fail. The gifts will. They'll become yellow, and they will age, and they'll become obsolete, but love never fails. It's like people that held Confederate dollars at the end of the Civil War. They were left with currency with no lasting value. And those who put all their currency and gifts to the exclusion of love are just going to be left with worthless paper someday. David Jeremiah puts it like this. He says, the amazing part of this chapter isn't that tongues are going to cease or that knowledge is going to cease or that prophecy is going to cease. The major emphasis is that love is eternal and is never going to die. That's the point. Love lasts and love outlasts. And so you and I must keep loving one another because love touches everything with eternity. That which is spoken in love and that which is done in love will never fade away. Love is timeless and love is deathless. David Ireland, uh, years ago, uh, wrote a a book. It was a well-known book at the time called Letters to an Unborn Child. And David Ireland was disabled. Um, He was confined to a wheelchair and he was terminally ill. And he wrote a series of letters to the unborn child he would never meet. His wife was pregnant. And he wrote these letters to be read one day by his wife to this unknown son or daughter that he would never meet. And at one point in the book, he's telling this unborn child he won't meet about their mother. And he says this, your mother is very special. Few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner, what it entails, what it does for me. It means she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, open the garage, put me in the car, take the pedals off the chair, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so that I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get back in the car and drive off to the restaurant. And then it starts all over again. She gets out of the car and folds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the car, wheels me into the restaurant, then takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit down to have dinner and she feeds me throughout the entire meal. When it's over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out to the car again, and reverses the same routine. And when it's over and finished, with real warmth, she says to me, Honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner. And David Ireland says, I never know quite what to answer. Look, love is deathless. It it abides. Can you imagine that unborn child reading and hearing those words someday? 
Love echoes out into eternity. It impacts a dying husband, and it touches an unborn child. That is the permanence of love. Well, the next thing we see here in verse 13 is the preeminence of love. After all the gifts have ceased, these three virtues will remain, faith and hope and love. Now, people sometimes wonder, well, why will we have faith in heaven? Because our faith will have become sight. Well, that's true, but we're still going to need to depend on the Lord. And we're still going to have hope, I believe, for all of eternity because there's things we're going to look forward to in expectation. But he says faith and hope and love are going to abide, but the greatest of these is, is love. Uh, this trinity or triad of virtues is often found in Paul's writings. Faith is usually first because it's faith that brings us new life in Jesus Christ. That's the first step. when We trust Christ as our Savior. Then hope is the expectation that we have because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And then, of course, uh, love is the greatest of these uh, because of, of what we've seen here in chapter 13. Now, why is love the greatest? I mean, I've read in, in a lot of books these last few weeks, and there's all kinds of peop reasons people give why love is the greatest of these three. But I think two things stand out to me. One is faith and hope are both encompassed by love and energized by love. Um, notice back up in verse 7, love believes all things and hopes all things. So faith and hope are manifestations of love because love believes and love hopes. So faith and hope are, are not something love isn't, but love is something more than faith and hope. So faith and hope are encompassed in love and energized by it. But the second reason, I think the main reason that, that love is the greatest of these three is love is an attribute of God. God doesn't believe. God doesn't have faith. God doesn't hope. But God loves. In fact, God doesn't just love, the Bible says. God is love. And so love expresses something of the eternal, essential nature and attributes of God. And of course, it's love that was demonstrated most clearly at the cross. God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Look, someday the, the gifts are going to come to a screeching halt, but love is going to go on. So to leave a lasting legacy, you and I must love other people. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, was once asked, what makes the church like heaven? And his response is, it is love. It's love that makes the church like heaven. So you and I need to choose the eternal. Choose what expresses the nature of God. There's a great cathedral in Milan, Italy. There's a triple doorway leading into it, and there's an inscription above each of the three entrances. Above one of the arches is carved, all that pleases is but for a moment. Over the second one is a cross with the words, all that troubles is but for a moment. But underneath the, the great central entrance to the main aisle, these words are inscribed, that only is important, which is eternal. And of course, love is eternal. It never fades. It never yellows. Uh, this indeed is an everlasting love. Well, let's spend our last few moments here looking at the very first two words of chapter 14. This is really the end of this. Notice what the Apostle Paul writes, pursue love, the pursuit of love. After chapter 13 and all that Paul has said, it's not surprising at the end he says, pursue love. 
And by the way, this is a present tense imperative verb. It's an imperative, meaning it's a command, but it's present tense, meaning this is something that you and I are to continue to do. It's to be the, the pattern of life. Look, love is the great imperishable, so it must also be the great imperative. I mean, if it's imperishable, it has to be the great imperative of life. And the word pursue here literally means to chase or to hunt for. So you could translate this, chase love or, or run after love, go hard after it, make it your lifetime pursuit to gain love. You know, I think it's interesting, the very last verse of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 24, Paul says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. My love be with you all in Christ. Paul gives them his love. Love was Paul's primary pursuit. It's the primary commandment in the New Testament. Fifty-five times we're commanded to love. So we're to pursue love and possess love. We're to have an energetic, emphatic pursuit of love in our lives. Nothing is more important to give our lives to. So let me just mention here quickly as we close three things that you and I need to do, I think, to pursue love. There are many more, but I just want to mention these three. One is to soak yourself in the love of God. Think often about how much God loves you. Now, that may be difficult for some of us here. I know there's some people that have a difficult time, maybe because of trouble and struggle and difficulty in their life, really believing that God loves them. But the Bible says that God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And it's by soaking ourselves and immersing ourselves in God's love that we increase in love. Because in 1 John it says we love because he first loved us. It's his love that's shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So think often about God's love. Think about the immensity of it. God so loved the world. But also think about the individuality of it. God not only loves the world, but he loves you and he loves me. There's an old picture that, that someone painted years ago in our minds that says that God's love for one sinner is like the Amazon River flowing down for one flower. Think about that. It's like the, the whole Amazon River flowing down just to water one flower. That's what the love of God is like for you and for me. So just think often about God's love as you read through the Scriptures, what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. A second thing is spend time with God's people. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to spur one another to love and good works. You and I are to stimulate one another and to spur one another on to love and to good works. But then what does the passage go on and say? Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but encouraging one another and doing it all the more as you see the day drawing near. Regular fellowship with God's people stirs us up and spurs us on to love and to good works. Our love for God and others catches fire as we're together. Now, I realize right now some of, some, uh, of us can't be here uh, because maybe of underlying conditions or maybe some of those who are elderly or some who just choose not to come. But my prayer is that as this uh, uh, coronavirus wanes, um, if there's some cure that's found for it or whatever, that people will come back and will be gathered together as God's people and not forsake the assembling together. I think maybe during this time it's been a little bit easy for some of us to kind of just kick back on Sunday mornings. It's a little easier than coming to church to just stay home and watch online. 
But one of the things it says is we're to spur one another to love and good works. We do that as we assemble together and we encourage one another. So as we gather, I pray that we're spurring one another and stimulating one another to to love and good works. The final thing, and this is probably the clearest one in the Scripture, is to surrender our lives to the Holy Spirit. If you go to Galatians 5, Galatians 5 lists the fruit of the Spirit. And the very first thing mentioned is love. Really, all the other parts of the fruit of the Spirit in some ways are just manifestations of love. The fruit of the Spirit is love and then joy and peace and patience. But really, all of that in some ways is encompassed in love. But you and I, to have true agape love and to pursue it and see it manifest in our lives, have to surrender our lives to the Holy Spirit. Because I don't care how hard you try, I don't care how hard you work at it, you can't produce one drop of agape love in your own strength. You can't do it. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is manifest in our lives as we yield our lives to the control of the Spirit. And in Galatians 5, it says, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. To walk in the Spirit means to live dependent, walking in dependence upon the Spirit. A little bit further in Galatians, in chapter 5 and verse 25, it says, keep in step with the Spirit. I think about that often in my life. Am I in step with the Spirit? Am I I keeping in line with the Spirit's leading and guiding? It's kind of a military term of, of, of those who are marching in the military. You'd be marching in line, marching to the cadence of your, of your uh, uh, drill sergeant or drill instructor. And of course, the Holy Spirit is barking out His cadence, if you will, in our lives. And His cadence is found in the Word of God. We, we keep in step with the Spirit as we surrender ourselves and live in conformity with His Word because the Spirit is the author of the Word of God. So we live out God's love through the Holy Spirit who lives within us and produces it through us. A key word in the Christian life for you and for me to think about often is the word yield, to yield. We yield ourselves to God. And as we yield to the Spirit, the Spirit subdues our flesh and the Spirit stimulates His fruit in our lives, the crowning virtue of which is love. You and I cannot subdue our flesh or our sin nature on our own, and we can't produce the fruit of the Spirit on our own either. We do that as we yield to Him. The Holy Spirit is the source and the strength of agape love. Love is patient. It's kind. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't seek its own. It's not irritable. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Only the Holy Spirit can produce that in your life and in my life. And when you become a believer in Christ, the moment you trust in Christ, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. He takes up residence in your life. So, The Holy Spirit, we get all of the Holy Spirit we're going to get the moment we trust Christ, but it takes a lifetime for the Holy Spirit to get all of us. That's the kicker. It's not us getting more of Him. It's Him getting more of us. Someone put it this way years ago, the Holy Spirit in in the life of the believer is resident, but He wants to be president. He's resident in our lives. He lives in all of us who've trusted Him, but He wants to be president. And if we're going to pursue a life of love, We have to make the Holy Spirit president in our lives. We have to yield ourselves to Him. There's an old man 
I heard about him. Every morning in bed, before he'd crawl out of bed, he'd say, this bed is the altar and I'm the sacrifice. Be a pretty good practice, wouldn't it? Every morning before you get out of bed, this bed is the altar and Lord, I'm the sacrifice. I give myself to you today for you to use me. And that ought to be our prayer as we pursue uh, love with everything that we have. For those of you who've uh, been over to Israel, to Jerusalem, uh, there's a main street in the modern part of the city called Ben Yehuda Street. It's named after Eleazar Ben Yehuda. And he's the one after 41 years of, of, of dogged labor that finally realized his dream of the people in Israel speaking the Hebrew language. They originally spoke 150 separate languages, and he made it his goal to bring the people under one language, and he he finally accomplished that. But he was so dogged in his determination for that, he was often called a fanatic. That's all he thought about for 41 years. And I love this. When he died, the epitaph on on his tombstone says this, here lies Eleazar ben Yehuda, a faithful fanatic. I like that. You know, it's not good to be a fanatic about some things, but I'll tell you one of the things we need to be faithful fanatics about is love. To me, that's one of the greatest things could ever be said about us. That person was a faithful fanatic when it came to love. They pursued love. They they lived uh, under the umbrella of God's love uh, for them and their life. Uh, They surrendered their self to the Spirit of God. They spent time with God's people and were spurred on uh, to love and to good works. And so it's my prayer that God will use this study these last few weeks, this summer of love, to help us be faithful fanatics when it comes to love. We faithful fanatics about love in our marriages, uh, with our children, in our homes, uh, with people that we just meet out in society every day, and uh, maybe people you work with in your business, and and with those of us here um, in this church, that we will be faithful fanatics, that we will pursue Agape love with everything that we have because everything we do without love, it's not going to last. It's going to be a big zero. So may God help us uh, to pursue his love and be faithful fanatics. Well, let's pray together. At the end of this series, it's certainly appropriate that we would ask anyone who's never trusted Christ to take this opportunity to receive him to be your Savior. The Bible tells us that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus came and he paid your sin debt on the cross. He purchased a pardon for you. All you have to do is simply take it. Receive God's love for you in the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose again for you. When you do that, you'll receive the gift of eternal life. All your sins will be washed away and you'll have this new capacity through the Holy Spirit to have true agape love. I'm in your life for those around you. So receive him right now, right where you sit, if you've never done that before. And Father, help those of us who know you now, we pray, to give our lives to that which lasts and which outlasts. Help us not to, to spend our time on, on lesser things, focused on things that are going to be burned up someday when this uh, world uh, goes the way of all flesh. Father, help love to be the great imperative of our lives, that everything we do will be bathed in it and immersed in it, that it will be the great imperative for each one of us. Father, help us as a church, as families, marriages, help us to be faithful fanatics when it comes to love, to pursue love with everything we have, because it's the only, only thing that will last. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.